You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 137 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you? Al? Um, let's see. I just taking an internal audit. I'm all right. You're taking an internal audit? Well, I'm just having to go through the moment there, and yep, no, all's good. And you? I'm kind of busy, you know, it's a bit hard. (laughs) My head is spinning most of the time. So when someone says, how are you, I actually have to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I know. Good on you. Yes, I know. It's it's good good to be in the moment, don't you think? It is good to be in the moment. That's Hmm. mindfulness for you. Yeah, right there. Yes, I am okay. Yes, <laughs> I have um, had visitors. It's been it's been great. Oh yes, let's yes. talk about that because you've got children staying That's at your right. house for That's the first right. time ever. Yes, first time ever. They're and very well going? behaved. They're very well behaved. They're lovely it's- children. They are, um, and it's been great to hang out with the grown ups because mm-hmm. I haven't seen them in a very long time, so that's been Excellent. wonderful. Great. Um, and it was really good when the kids went to sleep last night because then we broke out the scotch. And <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the eye-opening thing for me, and I realise that uh, many people out there will go, yeah, this is normal, is the amount of time it takes to get people out of the house. You know, yes. just – just like when you're going somewhere, it's like, have you got this? Have you put your sunscreen on? Have you gone to yes. the toilet? Have you yes. got your bottle of yes, water? Yes, I do, I do know. Yes, yes strangely you do enough, know. I do know. I remember writing a Facebook post uh, ages ago, like years ago, probably when my boys were still, you know, eight and five or whatever they were at the time, just got – I wrote a little rap song about – Oh. I did because – I think the thing that I was saying most often at that point in my life mm. was put your bloody shoes on <laughs> over and over, particularly in the mornings when I was trying to get them both out the door to school because you'd say yes. put your shoes on and then you turn around and they'd be, you know, spinning on their heads, yes. put your shoes on and then you turn around and they'd be watching telly and uh. you'd be put your shoes on. And, and honestly, <laughs> and then you, you, you're kind of like rolling out the door in this screaming, top, you know, sort of teeming, writhing mess of arms and legs and shoelaces and God knows yes. what else, and they still don't have their shoes on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Every wow. day, Cal. Every wow. day. Wow. Well, I have a new appreciation for getting groups of people out of the house. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow. Why, it's, do you, it's... why do you think I had to write an entire course on how to make time to write? Yes. Like by the time you do all that, there's not much time left in yeah. the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But anyway, it's been a learning experience for me. Uh, and uh, But we want to give a big shout-out to, moving on, 
by the way, <laughs> in case you didn't realise. <laughs> We're not going to talk about shoes anymore, no more we shoes. promise. Yes, no more shoes, no more sunscreen, no more going to the toilet. Uh, we want to give a big shout out to someone from Massachusetts, Jason Ooh, Garand, who has left us a review on iTunes and he has said, hello from Massachusetts. I just think that's awesome that we have a listener in Massachusetts, Al, don't you think? It's just I do. I'm very excited. Hello. How are you, and Jason? Yeah, g'day. how are you, Jason? Oh, yeah, g'day. We always forget, don't we? G'day. Yes. So Jason says, I found your podcast when searching for how to become a writer. You and Alison are a joy to listen to. The combination of Aussie wit and great advice is a wonderful balance. A real cracker. Look, <laughs> it's travelling <laughs> all the way to Massachusetts. <laughs> That's awesome. Jason says, sorry, probably shouldn't have said that. Love the interviews. I get much I get so much insight out of them. My favorite segment, of course, is Word of the Week. Oh, <laughs> no. he's not serious. He's just trying to make you feel better, Val. He said, but then he goes, just joking. <laughs> See? <laughs> Though the interplay is fun to hear, I'm hooked. Well, thank you, Jason. You've made Thanks. my day. Yes, particularly that little little moment there with the word of the week. You've made yes. her entire week with yeah, that made just her quietly. Entire week. Yeah, you <laughs> That's awesome, and uh, we really appreciate it. It means a lot to us. And if you do have thirty seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, uh, we'd be really grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. So, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, Al? Let's do that. I think we've done family moments, so it's time to probably get down to business. What have you got for us? What have we got? Well, you know how you've, a lot of people, yourself included, have recently done NaNoWriMo? Well, mm. obviously you guys have had a idea because you, you, you need some kind of idea in order to write 50,000 50, words or even 1,000 words or whatever. But mm-hmm. sometimes people aren't quite ready. Their idea hasn't germinated enough and what they really need, they still want to write, but what they might need is writing prompts. Mm. And so there's this cool thing that's just on a Google sheet, which we'll put in the show notes. And of course, you can find the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. And we'll put all of the links that we mentioned in the podcast in the show notes. But there is this, um, I found it on a blog called Control Alt Achieve. And uh, it has a random writing prompt generator that you have with Google Sheets. So, you know, this is just Google Docs. And you, you I've got it open at the moment and it's just got some um, random phrases which appear and uh, you can use them or a combination of them uh, as your writing prompt for whatever it is that you want to write today. Okay. So, for example, some of the things that just open, you know, on the sheet right now are um, – shadowy men or cylindrical trade or purring queen. But if you don't particularly, if nothing particularly inspires you, but, you Mm -hmm. know, hopefully something does because there's about 20 um, writing prompts that appear when you open the page. But if something, if, you know, something doesn't um, inspire you like creepy socks, you simply (laughs) refresh. socks? There's a kid's book in that. Yeah, well, there you go. So you simply refresh the page and then a whole new 20 come up like gummy birds or disillusioned flag. Disillusioned flag. Well, that pretty much sums up many world personnel right now, (laughs) (laughs) shall we say? Mixed donuts. 
mixed donuts. That just makes me hungry. Yeah, well, that too. Okay. Uh, so, or vulgar pot. So you see there are, you know, the whole range of different and they are quite random, but mm, they really that, are. But that's kind of good because then you're not going with some set idea in your head. You can mm. just go with limited breakfast <laughs> or strange breath and um, and go for it in terms yeah. of just getting your writing going. So if you haven't got an idea in your head and you need some writing prompts, then yes, the random writing prompt generator, which is on Google Sheets, uh, might be a goer, and we'll put that in the show notes. Right. There you go. Anything that gets you started is a good thing. Yes, anything that gets you started. So it's this t- it's that time of year where it's awards season and one of the Ooh. awards <laughs> that okay. uh, has been around for many years is the and I think this is like this is still PG, I would say, is the Literary Reviews Bad Sex Award. Oh. <laughs> Okay, and uh, where sh- I assume we're talking about the written version as opposed to oh, the yes. you know, life yes. in reality. Yeah, okay. It's the Bad Sex in Fiction Awards, Thank and you. the awards ceremony was uh, it, it was recently held this year, and it's in its twenty fourth year, and it's where wow. Literary Review magazine picks you know half a dozen or however many. Um, uh, passages from contemporary friction to represent the, you know, most badly written scenes, I guess. And uh, there's this article on the Huffington Post that says, Award season is upon us. The Booker Prize went to its first American recipient, Paul Beatty. The National Book Award went to the deserving Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. The Literary Review's Bad Sex Award, given to the writer who stumbles most failingly through bedroom dalliances, went to Eri DeLuca, author oh. of The Day Before Happiness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are, you, are we needing to read some of that out? We would, well, lo- we would lose our PG yeah, rating if we were to do that, wouldn't that's, we? That's right. Because mm. And the point, you know, there's quite a number of articles out there at the moment as a result of the uh, recent announcement of the Bad Sex Awards winner. Mm. And um, a lot of them are saying that they have such awards because it is actually incredibly um, hard to write Sort of pardon the pun. Difficult, I think, is the word you want there. (laughs) (laughs) Difficult. (laughs) Difficult to write these sorts of scenes, which you well know. Yes, I do, and they are. And we had a very hard, difficult. Well, because it's it's look, it's like um, okay. So recently, we spoke to Alan Baxter, who's a fantasy horror writer, and he and I mm. were having a conversation about writing fight scenes. Okay, this is I'm just stay with me, and we were <laughs> okay. discussing fight scenes, and we would he was talking about how bad fight scenes are like bad sex scenes, and bad fight scenes mm. are where people concentrate on what goes where, like for, you know, a punch thing, whatever, and don't focus on being in the moment. So a great sex scene is not so much about, you know, tab B going into slot A Mm. as opposed to what it feels like to be in that moment. And I think that the people, it's really easy to tie yourself up in knots, so to speak, when you're writing a sex scene because Mm. honestly, like I remember doing one one time and I was, because, you know, this stuff all happens very late at night and I'm, I was sort of standing there and, and, 
I, I, you physically have to kind of get up from your desk and sort of try to, and I'm standing <laughs> really? in the middle of the room, <laughs> standing in the middle of the room and I'm sort of like trying to figure out who's where at any given time and I've got arms and, and my husband came in and he's just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm, because, you know, everyone's asleep and I'm sort of thumping around and <laughs> I know. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing a sex scene. And he's like, no, that's not what you're doing. I'm like, yeah, I actually physically am. Because you sort of, you almost have to be kind of, you know, with your head on one side and then you're trying to figure out if that's actually physically possible. And um, so it's, and it's very difficult. And the, the biggest problem that you have, of course, is what to call everything. Oh, you, oh, it gets yeah. so awkward. Right. You know, I mean, the headline on that particular story that you just read out was Ooh. a plank stuck to her stomach. And this is <laughs> probably just an example of where someone's gone horribly wrong looking for a new word to use. Oh, my um, Because, you know, if you use the technical term for the body parts in action, it, yeah. it reads like a, you know, Medical science term. experiment gone horribly wrong. Um, but then if you start to use slang, it gets so messy Ooh. and, yeah, it's, it's actually quite difficult. So I think if you're going to be writing sex scenes, um, I think it's like anything. I think the important thing to do is to read a lot yes. of sex scenes and work out which ones are good and which ones are not. And um, the other person, the other interview I would have a listen to would be that uh, interview that we did with Kylie Scott, who writes mm. erotic fiction. Um because that was great. We discussed the sex scene there, and I might have also talked about it. We've had a couple of goes at that particular subject <laughs> mm. now that I think about it. Um, so, yeah, but it's it's. Just, I think the thing, if you focus on what it's like to be in the moment as opposed to observing the moment from outside and looking at what's going where and who's doing what to who, oh. um, that's probably the key to actually getting to, to grips, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> See what I'm saying? It all just gets terribly, terribly messy, yes, terribly yes, quickly. It is. Um, it does. Yeah, but it's very easy for it to go wrong. Like it's really easy for it to go wrong. Yes, I can see that because I am currently reading some examples from The Day Before Happiness by Eri DeLuca. I'm reading them in my head and not out loud so that we still have our PG rating okay. because we know yeah. that many people do listen to us, you know, while their kids are around. Um and yeah, you they need. Oh, I think you need to perhaps click on the link in the show notes and read it yourself because they're kind of bad. Mm, they are. They're good. I mean, yes. they're so bad. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, let us move on because the silly season is upon us, is it not? And oh, um, so upon us. Yes, and it's the time where we get by our Chris Gringles and all of our prezies. So you have an interesting link for us, don't you? Well, I do, and it's an example of a link because this, you know, as someone who is constantly trawling around the social media for, um, you know, in my role as social media chicky for mm. – I still think I need a new title okay. – but as social media chicky for the um, Australian Writers' Centre, I'm, uh, you know, constantly looking at different things. And, of course, this time of year is our gifts for writers' season. Yes. So it's actually one of my favourite times of year because, of course, I love a good little, you know, writerly thing as much as anyone. Yes. And we um, are talking about gifts. Gifts as in prezies, as in presents, not gifts as in funny little pictures on the internet. Oh, yeah, no. They're gifs, remember? 
Remember oh. there was that whole debate that really? you had to have the soft G? Yeah. Oh, Even though okay. I prefer the hard G. Okay. If we were talking about them, we'd be talking about GIFs, not GIFs. Oh, okay. Oh, presents. Sorry. Okay. All right. Presents okay. for writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm putting one link in the show note that I particularly liked, and it was from the Aerogram Studio Yes. Uh, website, which is a fantastic website for mm. um, for writers, uh, but they've done thirty five gifts for writers and book lovers under thirty five dollars. Now, the thing I fo- always find interesting about these posts is that I love putting them up because I just adore them. I think they're so much fun. But there's always someone who's going to, you know, comment on the Facebook post saying, all a writer needs is a comfortable chair and a notebook. And Mm. you know what? That's probably the case. But like, there's got to be room in life for a few accessories, right? So I think the key key to um, choosing accessories for writers is knowing the writer in your particular life um, as to what they would like. Now, anyone who's ever read my Facebook page or blog or Twitter or anything will know that I am an absolute sucker for a notebook. Like you can Mm. just win me over immediately with a notebook. And that's, that's all I need. I have, you know, shelves of them all unused because they're too good to use but you know mm. I just like to have them um, Absolutely. but I also remember like um, I remember I came to the Australian Writers Centre Christmas lunch one year and you gave us bracelets with typewriter key you know initials mm. on and I loved it because it was just so you know typewriter keys can't go wrong with those either <laughs> so I think um, the, the great thing about these things is that there's so many great little ideas and they're they're you know you, they're easily personalized to the writer in your life or frankly just go out and buy yourself a few to yes. set you up next year like you know I think so yeah I think so I love this so the number one um, item on the aerogram studios list is this little uh, night light book light. It's, it looks like a book. So you close it yes. and it's off and then you open it and it's like the, um, you know, the pages of the book open up and suddenly you have a light. And I just thought, oh, it's so pretty. It's like an accordion. Think? Opens like an accordion. It opens like an accordion and it's a light. And I just thought, yeah, you know what? I could do with one of those. $32.99 bargain. Awesome. I like um, there's these socks where on the actual sole of the sock, <laughs> Uh, on one foot, it's if you can read this, and on the other foot, it's please bring me my book. Yes. I yes. think that's pretty good. And also, <laughs> what about how's this? The bookworm bath towel, number 16 on the list for $28, is just a gorgeous thing. And, you know, if you've got a book lover in your life, perfect Yeah, gift. absolutely. That's so cool. So, and- oh, and the other thing I love is the library card iPhone case. Did you see that? The library card due date iPhone case. Go down oh, to yes. 18. Yes, that's so cool. So, so the old-fashioned library card where you used to get them stamped. There's a whole generation of people who are listening to this who don't know what we're talking about. I know, but never- those who do, those who do <laughs> will love it. <laughs> yes, it's really cool. It's exactly like a library card. I like the um, – Great Gatsby Tea. So there's a literary tea collection where they're all themed across different um, literary, you know, either authors or genres or whatever. We were actually going to make our own Australian Writers' Centre tea. Really? Yes. (laughs) Can we make coffee? I don't drink tea. Ah, Okay, one thing at a time, Al. <laughs> All right, okay. I'm just I'm I'm suggesting it, the business plan may need to extend. Okay, okay sure. <laughs> and of course, there's lots of um there's various writing prompt generators as well. That's quite yeah. a common thing. And of course, yeah. lots of fantastic and gorgeous notebooks which are, you know, awesome. I particularly right. love um 
posters of typography. Yes. There's a couple of examples here where, um, yeah, it's funny that I would rather look at a page of words than, you know, a landscape. Yes. <laughs> but yes, uh, I funny. love typography. Hmm. Well, that's anyway. the thing. And, and you know what? People will argue that you don't need anything on this list to be a writer, and it's true, you don't. But you hmm. know what? There's room for fun. And I think if, you, if there's some little thing, there's a lovely little mug there, which is just – it's called the writer's mug. And on the back of it, it says, this is brilliant. You are awesome. Just keep going. And you know yeah. what? I think we could all do with one of those, frankly. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, speaking of gifts for writers, a fantastic gift for a writer is the Pilot Diary for Writers. It's from Pilot Press. It's called A Diary for Writers and uh, it's for 2017, which is available now. And it's really cool. And it's our giveaway for this week. And uh, it has over 200 pages of writerly wisdom and motivation, as well as um, contributions from various fantastic authors like Harmon. Bird and um, Mem Fox and uh, Benjamin Law, uh, including a contribution from the Australian Writer Centre on how to build your author platform. And um, yeah, it's uh, people have already tweeted us or messaged us on social media saying that they've got their copy and they absolutely love it. So if you would like to win a copy of the uh, Pilot Press Diary for Writers, then all you need to do is enter the competition at writerscentercomau slash win and entries close Monday the 12th of December. If you're listening to this podcast episode in the future, don't that worry, there'll be another giveaway there. But in the meantime, enter at writerscentercomau slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in magazine and newspaper writing, Stage 1, is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, how to approach editors, how to research and structure your articles, plus interviewing skills, industry expectations, and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash magazine. Are we ready for our word of the week, Al? Well, I know that Jason is on the edge of his seat, so (laughs) clearly I will be as well. Ready? It is consinity. I don't know what that means. Well, it's spelt C-O-N... C-I-N-N-I-T-Y, consinity. It's unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. It means elegance or neatness of literary style. Oh. It's, I, it's, it, I haven't heard of this very much myself either. So elegance or neatness of literary style. So, um, you know, continuing on with our writer theme and a literary theme, I thought we would mm-hmm. have a literary word. Excellent. Consinity. Mm. I have never used it in my life. I'm looking forward to seeing it in a blog post. So anybody out there who writes a blog post on this, uses this in their blog post, please tag me so that I can read it. We would love to see it in uh, uh, in context, in action, mm. in mm. the wild. Mm. All right. In the wild. <laughs> We're releasing it to the wild. All right. Yeah. 
Let's move on. One of the things that we wanted to talk about this week was the importance of deadlines and accountability because we often talk to people who say, oh, yeah, I've been working on my book for you know, 18 months or two years or three years or whatever, and I just need to get round to finishing it. It's almost finished. It's 80% there. The number of people I've spoken to, it's weird. Like I either speak to people who've only just started it, like so they're 20% in, and a lot of people who are 80% into it. Uh, So I – it's, it's it's just getting that past that final 20% that a lot of people, when I see them a year later, they're still at the 80%. Yes. Right? So it's a tough one because, how do, you know, what's your advice on getting to the 100% for those people? Okay. Well, I think this is one of the reasons that NaNoWriMo is so popular because, you know, as we know, we've all just completed NaNoWriMo. Yeah. Um, I think I ended up with about 30 1,217 words or some such thing, um, which of course was not the 50,000, but was, I was pretty happy with that. But I think one of the reasons that NaNoWriMo works so incredibly well for writers is that it gives them a deadline. You know, yes. the aim is to have 50,000 words written by November 30. And mm. that is the impetus that that a lot of people need to kind of actually get that done. Um, now, as someone who's worked, you know, in magazines, in journalism my entire life, I have this one thing to say, and that is not to underestimate the importance of a deadline. Like the deadline is um, is, is, is a really, really important thing. I use it all the time. So, NaNoWriMo for me was was the, the kickstart that I needed to get this manuscript done, but my deadline has always been and will always be December the 14th, which is the date that my children <laughs> finish school for the year. Um, and because, oh, of course, wow. once you – yeah, so once you slide down into Christmas, there's just no getting anything done. So if I don't finish by that date, then chances of me actually getting it finished until, you know, January 31 mm. are, are, are relatively small. So – um, I set myself a deadline and I worked to that deadline and that's the th- that, that's the other key. And the reason I worked to that deadline is I make myself accountable by telling someone else that I'm going to A, get it done by that date and send it to them. So someone's waiting for it. Well, in this particular instance, it's my, it's actually my publisher. But if you don't have a publisher, mm. what I do is I will send it to um you know, a, a writerly friend. Like I will contact a friend and say, I really got to get this done. My aim is to get this to you by X date. If you do not have it by this day, you need to email me and start asking me where it is. And they do. And that's what people right. do when they support you. Not in a kind of nasty way, yes. but in a, Al, it's now December the 15th and I don't seem to have your manuscript mm. <laughs> kind so of way. So does it frustrate Tell you? people. Does it frustrate you if the people are like the recipients um, are like a bit too kind and they say, oh, that's okay, I know, life gets busy, just no, no, no. anyway? No, it doesn't frustrate me because at the end of the day, it comes down to me. The responsibility is with me. And so, uh, you know, my it's all I put that on myself, but I make mm. myself accountable by telling them. So, you know, it's it's and again, I guess it also comes down to practice. I've had a lot of practice with deadlines over my life. So, I have that date looming in my head, and I know that I need to write x number of words a day to get to that, you know, to that date. Mm. Um and so, you know, that's it's it's as much a discipline and a habit thing and mm. the, you know so it's a, it, the, the deadline and the accountability help me to create the habit and the discipline and that's the way I work 
Yeah, absolutely. It's um, mm. it's uh, it's interesting because uh, it, so I think that that is that makes sense. You need to give yourself a deadline. But uh, the American author Tim Ferriss had this bizarre advice where he would say, obviously, make yourself have a deadline and declare it to whoever, um, and ideally declare it publicly. And mm. he his advice was think of a cause or charity or movement or whatever that is completely at, at odds with your values. So if you, you really do not support gun ownership, think of the gun ruffle associa- mm. gun, you know, association. If you uh, are anti this, think of the Ku Klux Klan. Think of a, a, a cause that you really is complete opposite of what you believe in that you would hate absolutely hate to support and make a public declaration that you will donate a thousand dollars or whatever to them if you don't meet your deadline. <laughs> Jeez, that's that's you know extreme. I know. I, I, I guess I mean you know like some just get, uh, you reward know. yourself with banoffee pie. I yeah, mean, like really. just go the banoffee pie route. But you know, look, whatever works for you. Like if if that's what it's going to take to get you over the line, then yes. do that. But I also think it's really really important, um, and this comes you know from a daily writing kind of practice. Even if it's only two hundred words a day, even if it's just get you know. M- you, you need to start training yourself to do it. And it, and that's partly, so you give yourself the deadline, you make yourself accountable, but the mm. responsibility for actually doing it, no one can write this book for you. Yeah, You know, it's, it's going to be you that has to do it. So you've got to find it within yourself to sit down every day and do those words that you need to do. And it's a, the, the deadline. So for me, the deadline and the account of that, just that knowing that someone's waiting for it is yeah. enough for me. But do whatever it is that you need to do. Barnoffy pie if you need it, $1,000 to the Ku Klux Klan if you need it, whatever it takes to get you to the end of that manuscript. Um, but I think you will find as you practice more and as you do this more and as that habit builds within you that the extreme lengths are probably not going to be as necessary. Yes, that's right. And, of course, Alison is full of fantastic tips and strategies, really practical strategies on how you can make time to write. And one of the things that she's done in the recently launched course called How to Make Time to Write is an absolutely fantastic 30-day writing boot camp where at the end of 30 days you will have 10,000 words. Now, the beauty about this 30-day bootcamp is even if you enroll in the course now or purchase the course now, which is online and on demand, you can actually start that 30-day bootcamp at any point. So you might want to wait till, you know, the kids get off school or go back to school or whatever. And you might say, okay, I want to start the 30-day bootcamp now. And I've already spoken to, uh, I've got some feedback from the lovely Nicole, who is going through the 30-day bootcamp. And she's says it's just got her writing again and she's so excited and motivated by it she thinks it's worth its weight in gold not that it weighs a lot but you know (laughs) she thinks it's so practical so you know realistic as in realistic to do in terms of having a busy lifestyle and the fact that you will get and she knows now that she will get 10,000 words after 30 days has not only motivated her to complete the 30 days and get her 10,000 words, but she's already thinking, well, I can, uh, at the end of it, I can just do it again. Yes. You know? Repeat. And then you've got 20,000 words. Repeat. (laughs) Yeah. You'll easily have a novel in like 
well, in certainly less than a year, somewhere between yeah. maybe in eight months. Yeah. It's just it's just brilliant. And it's all, I think what's so clever about it is that it's all in very, very doable chunks. It makes so much sense to fit around your kids, to fit around a family, to fit around, you know, sport or whatever. So anyway, if um, you're interested in checking out how you can get 10,000 words in 30 days, uh, go to the course How to Make Time to Write and you will find that at writerscentercomau slash time. So writercentercomau slash time. So shall we move on now to our writer in residence this week? Who is it? Let's- well, it's quite exciting because our writer in residence this week is Hannah Kent. Mm. Now, uh, people may remember that Hannah Kent is the author of Burial Rights, which was an yeah. absolute international sensation when it was published a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and it did, you know, brilliantly in all the things. And she has, <laughs> yes. well, yeah, really, let's talk about it, all the things. And she um, has recently released her new novel, The Good People. And we had a, a really interesting chat about the writing process for both those books, the pressure that comes with being an international literary sensation with your debut novel um, and, you know, all the other writerly fabulous things. So I hope that you guys enjoy this interview with Hannah Kent. Hannah Kent's first novel, the international bestseller Burial Rights, was translated into 28 languages and was shortlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction and the Guardian First Book Award. It won the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year, the Indie Awards Debut Fiction Book of the Year and the Victorian Premier's People's Choice Award and it was shortlisted for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. Her second novel, The Good People, was recently released in Australia and will be out in the UK and North America in 2017. Hannah is also the co-founder and publishing director of Australian literary publication, Kill Your Darlings. So welcome to the show, Hannah. It's very, very exciting to have you here because, of course, your book, uh, Burial Rights, was one of the biggest uh, publishing success stories in Australian you know, publishing in the last few years. So maybe you could tell us, we'll start by, we'll, we'll sort of work forward from there, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that first book, Burial Rights, came to be published. Yeah, certainly. I um, Burial Rights has a bit of a funny origin story because, I mean, if I look back to where I first sort of got the idea for the book, it was way back when I was sort of, you know, I first encountered the events that it was based on when I was 17 years old. But I didn't really start writing the, the manuscript seriously until I was doing a PhD at Flinders University in creative writing. I'd sort of decided to do a PhD because I enjoyed the academic work and I also thought it would be a really compatible career if I wanted to also keep writing. So I was doing my PhD and I'd started writing the book that would become Burial Rights as part of my honours degree and realised basically that here I was trying to write this story about the last execution in Iceland that I needed to do so much research, more research than I was able to fit into anything during in my honours year. So I went on to do this PhD and um, it was my it was all part of sort of my scholarly research. So even when I was writing this manuscript, I always thought that probably about four people would read it, you know, two of whom being my parents and maybe two examiners as well. So it was it was written it was written for a thesis. It wasn't written for publication and I never really entertained the thought that it would be published. I do remember 
during the process of researching my PhD and writing this component of it that I thought, well, maybe one day when I have the time down the track, I might revisit this as sort of an early draft and see if I can shape it up into a novel that I might then send out. But I didn't really feel that it would ever be a publishable standard. I was hoping that it would be uh, high enough for me to sort of pass my PhD and get my postgraduate, but I never really thought beyond that. And of course, PhDs are quite intense um, years as well. So I never really thought, I wasn't thinking of where to go beyond that. I just wanted to get my thesis out the way. And then, uh, so I, I wrote, I wrote, um, I spent about two years of my PhD doing research for this book. It involved a lot of translation. It involved um, uh, me going to Iceland on a specifically on a research trip to access primary sources there, censuses and microfilm and go to the national records and the national libraries and so forth. And um, one thing I did realize was how much I enjoyed research which meant that I could endlessly procrastinate and put off the actual writing of the book. Mm. Um, but the beautiful thing, of course, about PhDs, much like book contracts, is that they come with deadlines. And so uh, I think it was probably in 2009, I, uh, no, maybe a bit little, a little bit later, I buckled down and I started to write a first draft. And I set myself the, pro- uh, I guess, the, the routine of writing a thousand words a day until I had the first draft out of the way. And I thought, well, at least that's something that I can hand up if I run out of time with my PhD. So you've done all the research, but like you basically did a couple of years of research before you started to write anything. And then your process was a thousand words a day. And I'm going to get this thing done. It was. Right. Yeah, it was. Well, I I really, I was very anxious about writing a book. I'd never done it. I'd written some terrible short stories previously. I actually really loved writing poetry. That was my main love. And then I, but of course I knew I had to, I'd agreed to write basically a novel length manuscript as part of this degree. So I um, I actually went onto that wonderful site. I think it's now defunct, but I think they've got the archives up there. The Guardian Books Writers Room series. Yes, they're great. Where they yeah, so they take a photograph of the writer's room or their working space and then the writer talks about their process. And I thought, well, I don't know how to write a book. I'll go have a look at these at these writer's room series and hopefully I'll work out what the, you know, the routine is. How do people do these things? And, of course, one thing that you soon realise after reading a whole bunch of these um, articles is that Everyone has a different process. Mm. Um, But I did stumble across Sarah Waters' um, process. And, of course, she writes historical fiction based sometimes on true events. And I thought, well, that's a a pretty good – that's enough. There's enough similarities there for me to basically pinch her writing routine, which was a thousand words a day. Um, And so I ended up writing the manuscript as part of – basically by doing that – and that did help me from, I guess, getting too much – too bogged down in the detail. It made me sort of get a bit of momentum and – I eventually had this very, very messy 120,000-word manuscript wow. um, that I then promptly put into the drawer to get on with the other exegetical component of my of my research and my thesis. And then I actually had a supervisor um, of mine tell me one day of a coffee that there was a new award for an unpublished manuscript which had been announced, which was uh, the Writing Australia Unpublished Manuscript Award. Um, and she asked me, now that I had this, you know, shocker of a manuscript, a first draft in the drawer, if I would consider entering it. And I immediately said, oh, no, 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 I, um, it needs a lot of work. It's, you know, it's overwritten. It's just a first draft. And she said, well, you've got a week. <laughs> and I said, no, I've got a, I said, no, no, I've got a review due. I can't do it. I kept on putting it off. She said, how much are you getting paid for this review? <laughs> 
And I lied. I said twenty dollars. I was actually just getting the free book. I was doing it for free. <laughs> and she said, "Look, why don't you call the editor up and ask if you can get a few, you know, an extra week um, pushback on your deadline, and instead focus on your manuscript? I think it's time that you know use it use it as an opportunity to get a second draft down for your PhD." So I thought, okay, yeah, fair enough. Couldn't really argue with that. Um, and so I spent this week. I remember I went up to my parents' house. And I, it was basically like Howard Hughes, the later years. You know, I didn't emerge from my room. I spent the whole time working, just mainly slashing uh, from this manuscript and trying to get it into a workable order. I'd never done a structural edit before, so I mainly just cut adjectives. And there were a lot of them in there, Alison. I, I think I cut about 20,000 words of adjectives. And I, um, the deadline for the award was, I think um, midnight on this particular night, and I submitted it with fifteen minutes to go. Oh, you're kidding! And, and your parents uh, pushing food under the door all week just to keep yeah, going. Totally. Yeah, totally. I know, and reminding me to bathe if I got an opportunity. <laughs> all these sorts of things. Um, and then I was, I was, and then I, I kind of forgot about it. I was just really chuffed to have a second draft down. And then um, I was really fortunate that a couple of Oh, goodness, weeks or months later, I got a phone call and I was told that I was shortlisted. And then um, soon after that, I was also told I, I, was, I won. Uh, wow. And that was really, I guess, where the whole publication journey started for me. Um, and that's, it was a very much, you know, a, a hook turn that I wasn't expecting, um, but one that I, of course, you know, still hugely grateful for. So uh, you the had, prize. Uh, sorry. Sorry, got, I was no, going to say go. the prize came. The prize came with a mentorship um, and they basically said, look, feel free to approach any, let us know which Australian writers you'd like to work with and we'll approach them on your behalf. And um, it was out of that that I managed to get a mentorship with Geraldine Brooks, mm. which was incredible. She was um, so generous with her time and, um, you know, it also helped me moved back out of my parents' house and and, uh, and bought me a little bit more time to, to keep working on the book. Um, and that was how, that was the start of it. I ended up getting an agent and, um, and yeah, and continued to work onto the book until the agent decided it was time to send out the, the manuscript. So you had no sense at any time that you were writing, you know, an award-winning book that, you know, the, the, oh, gosh, the sort of no. thing that it became, yeah. No, no, not at all, which is why it was such a overwhelming and, you know, hugely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience, but it was none of it was expected. Of course, I really, I always had the aspiration to be published before I was 30, which is such a dumb idea, really, in retrospect, because, of course, every book has its, requires its own amount of time to write, but this was, you know, this was the aspiration of a 21-year-old. Um and um, and so I did. I did want to be published. It was very much something that I was working towards, but I didn't think it would happen like that, and I didn't think it would happen with that book. So the res- and, and the response to it was amazing. And of course, there was was there not a bidding war and and you know all sorts of things. There was a huge amount of press. It you know it got amazing reviews. I mean, were you overwhelmed? But I mean, how did that feel when when that sort of all unfolded in front of you? I think um, I was in shock. You know, it was it was. All of it is wonderful, and like I say, all of it is something that I'm so appreciative for, uh, and because it has allowed me to now write more than I ever thought I would be able to. Uh, but certainly at the time, you know, because it was so unanticipated and because it was so unexpected, it was really disorientating. And um, I, I had a few moments where I'm just like, "What? What is going on? What? Is, what even is this world? I know nothing about the industry." Um, I know nothing of how to even be a published author. I don't know how to go and give book talks or do any of that. Um, and, and you know, I'd, I'd had experience of people reading my work, but that had all been confined to a university workshop context. So, 
you know, getting used to the idea of strangers going in and picking up your book. And also, you know, people passing judgment on it, on being mm. reviewed, all of these sorts of things was, it was an eye-opening experience, but it was, um, you know, I've, I don't, I've, I'm so happy it happened the way it did. It was, um, it was also incredible. I, I remember pinching myself. In fact, I still do. I pinch myself constantly at that. It feels like the sliding doors moment where really I shouldn't have that kind of life. That's something that could have happened. But um, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a bit, bit of a dream come true, to be honest. Okay. So and so what happened next? Because, um, you know, it sold into a lot of territories. And were you suddenly doing a yeah. lot of travel? And, you know, obviously you're, you're finding yourself on panels talking about writing at various different things. And um, how did that sort of look? I guess what my question would be like you've discovered you found yourself as a published author you're doing this job you've got to then what produce another book how mm. how did that work for you so it, it basically when burial rights was sold to a publisher it um it was sold to different publishers it was mm. sold into separate territories not as global rights so oh, yeah. I um and and the nature of when the manuscript was being out sent out to publishers, it had leaked overseas, which is why I was simultaneously signing a deal for Australia and US and the UK, mm-hmm. and then soon after that, um, in, in translation as well, which meant that from the start it was it felt it was a bit intense. I think there was um, even the editorial process. Um, I was working with uh, not only my home editor and publisher here in Australia, but also I was, they were incorporating feedback from overseas. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, that um, intensity continued as the book was sort of published and then um, publicity became a big part of it. It was released first in Australia and then, but shortly afterwards in the UK and the US. So I started uh, basically with a, with a national tour here in Australia talking about the book um, I found that I really enjoyed talking to readers it's, it's such an incredibly like I said gratifying experience mm. that people not only put aside a few hours of their life to pick up something that you've created in isolation but then will come you know on a Wednesday night when it's pouring down with rain and hear you speak mm. and, um, and, I, and of course people who love books are generally wonderful people and so I really really started to enjoy it but it was also a very very different experience uh, for me being quite an introverted person and quite shy something I had to get over pretty quickly and get used to public speaking um, and so I started doing a, a, a Australian tour and then I was overseas in the US doing um, pre-publication publicity speaking with booksellers there um, and then going later to do a hardback tour in the UK, then a hardback tour off the back of that in the US, um, coming back and doing more events in Australia. And then as the book became, um, as people responded to it, there was a bit of a slow burn in some places. I think it, people came to read it often through word of mouth, which mm. meant that the invitations for events um, were on a pretty perpetual roll, which was wonderful. I mean, how how fantastic. But it did mean that I was away from the desk a lot and there was an inc- a huge amount of writing, uh, I'm sorry, of travelling mm. um, involved, which, again, fantastic experience. So grateful and appreciative of it. Um, but it did mean that I had, I, when I sold the, um, when I sold burial rights, it was part of a two book deal. So right. at the back of my mind, while I was traveling around, I knew that I had a deadline for this next book. Um, and, um, it had been set for three years after the publication of burial rights because that's how long it took me to write that first book. And that's what I had asked for, um, so, which I know is, you know, actually a, a really long deadline compared to a lot of other writers who are, who sometimes are, you know, expected to produce a book a year, mm. particularly within genre fiction. Um, but 
I, I went and did a lot of different travel and um, was doing some writing at home. And of course, I, I also work as a publishing director and editor for Kill Your Darling. Yeah. So managing a lot of that work and doing teaching and workshops and so forth. And then um, I went, my, the last time I toured with Burial Rats was uh, last year in 2015. Um, I went to a series of Canadian writers festivals. And after that, I thought, no, I really got to, <laughs> really to work. Um, and that was the last thing that I'd said yes to. And throughout 2015, I'd started, I'd set aside a month to go to Ireland where I knew this next book was set um, to do research. And prior to that, all I'd been able to do was read. I hadn't really been getting very much work down. And so 2016, or the latter half of 2015, earlier this year, I just, I've never worked so hard in my life. I think I've just, um, I had a, a terrible draft. Um, I've had about 50,000 words when I went to Ireland, which was just all kind of ad hoc. It wasn't a linear narrative at all. And then, of course, as, as what hap- so often happens when you do research, I came back and realized that I couldn't use any of it. Mm. And so I ditched the 50,000 words. So this latest Isn't book was Isn't that a devastating written, moment? Like when you just uh, sort of go, oh. <laughs> it, you know, it was, but I'd already flashed those 20,000 adjectives from Burial Right, so I didn't yeah. know that it could improve a book. And I just... Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, I knew what story I wanted to tell, um, but I didn't know which way to tell it. I didn't know which character I needed or what voice. And, and so a lot, of, a lot of my time in anticipation of writing this book was spent playing with these different entry points into this particular kind of narrative. And um, when I came back from that research trip, I was going over these 50,000 words thinking, you know, I like you, I think you're well-written, but you're not, you're not the right way into this story. There was no heartbeat in it. There was no pulse. Right. Um, and so I, it, to, to throw it away and start afresh actually felt quite liberating. All right, um, so let's talk about your second book. It's called The Good People. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about it and tell us, so you said you had the idea for it um, even in the midst of this whirl of all these things going on. Like, where did that idea come from and then, you know, what happened next? So I guess, you know, what was yeah. the writing process for this one and was it different to the, to the first one? Absolutely. Well, I actually, when um, Burial Rats was being acquired by publishers, I was asked if I had a second novel in mind. And I immediately sort of, in my, in my mind's eye, went through my notebook where I write all sorts of ideas that I get for various stories. Some of them are terrible, some of them have got legs. And I remembered one in particular that I've always been pretty fascinated with. Way back when, when I was researching Burial Rats, so the manuscript of Burial Rats had not even been written then. Like I said, I had to do so much research and so much of that research involved translating Icelandic documents and then working out whether or not they were relevant to what I was doing. So mm. it was very, I, I have sort of a mediocre fluency in Icelandic, but it's quite another thing to sort of research historical documents and translate those. <laughs> and it was really, really tedious most of the time. Um, and I remember one afternoon I was at university and just sick to the teeth of, you know, sitting there with my dictionary, translating these boring Icelandic historical documents and so I felt oh I just really want to have the afternoon off that I felt like I needed to keep up appearances and give the illusions doing work so I decided to um, see if read read some English for a change and see if I could find any mention of Agnes Magnusdottir who was going to be my protagonist in English newspapers any accounts of her execution or the crimes of which she was accused um, so as they sometimes did often English newspapers reported on foreign events like this in instances of capital punishment particularly. Anyway, I was flipping through these old English newspapers and I couldn't find anything about Agnes Agnes Dottier. But as I was reading them and just, you know, skipping through the various articles, I happened upon this quite a short little 
description of a trial which had occurred in 1826 in the southwest of Ireland, um, in County Kerry. And the trial, the journalist described the trial of this woman who he said was of advanced age, you know, which could have been 45, you know, in contemporary <laughs> standards, um, who called Anne Roach, who had been accused of quite a serious crime. And I won't say what it is to give away any spoilers, but yeah. she'd been accused of something quite serious. But it wasn't so much her, the charges which fascinated me because, you know, I was up to my elbows in, in these sorts of stories at that time. It was her defence. She said that she couldn't be held accountable for what had happened because she was a fairy doctress and all she had been trying to do was banish a changeling. Mm. Now, I had already encountered changelings these these uh, as part of, I guess, my wider and longstanding interest in fairy lore from when I was a kid. So changelings are, are fairy imposters. Sometimes the fairies like to come and abduct humans, often young children, often young women or new mothers, and they take them away, but to not arouse the suspicion or, or the anger or ire of the families from which they've stolen them, they leave a, a, like a, a fake in the place, which is the changeling. It's an imposter. It might be an old fairy who they've magic to make it sort of resemble the stolen person, or it might just be, you know, an old log. Anyway... I'd heard of these stories, these changeling stories, and often the stories talk about attempts to get the, the original back from the fairies and to get rid of the old fairy imposter amongst them. But I'd never, ever heard of any instance where someone actually believed in real life that someone was a changeling. So it was this which just fascinated me, this intersection between fairy stories and reality in such extreme circumstances that I thought, oh, who is this woman? Who is Anne Roach? And, and why, what led her to do this, this thing? And, and did she really believe that this, that this person was a changeling? Um, and if so, how, how can she sustain that kind of belief? So I remember I wrote it down in my notebook and then when Barry Rights was being acquired and I thought, well, what, what is a story? What's something that I know I want to write about that can sustain, which my, I guess I can sustain curiosity about for three years? And I immediately thought of Anne Roach and I, I pitched it then and there. So I always knew the second book that I would write. I just didn't know how I was going to tell the story. I didn't know whether it would be like Burial Rights where I had a huge amount of research informing the narrative. It was very much a sort of a muddying between fact and fiction or whether it would be more inventive. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was my starting point, just this tiny little hundred-word newspaper article. Okay, and then what was your process for writing it from there then? Did you – I mean, because obviously you did a, a huge amount of research with Burial Rights, so, you know, several years' mm. worth. Did you um, – and I suspect that research is actually, you know – I get a sense that you really enjoy that and it can be often difficult to know when to stop when it comes to that, when you're yeah. enjoying it. Um, but what did, what sort of, what was the process with this one? Because obviously this was a, a slightly different situation and you were fitting it in around a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my first, my first uh, step was to see, do as I had done with Agnes Macintosh and see if I could find Anne Roach in the historical records. Um, I knew that I could easily find out more information about her or about this particular occurrence in, the, in 1826 without necessarily telling myself that I needed to be faithful to those facts in the mm -hmm. story. I just wanted to know more about what had happened in the, and I guess the wider context of these events. And so I started with um, doing some genealogical research. I mean, Ireland, there's so many, the Irish have descendants everywhere around the world. So mm -hmm. there's actually a huge wealth of genealogical databases. Um, and so I tried to find her in many of them and I kept on coming up with nothing. And this went on for some time. So I thought, well, I can't waste 
much more time just just searching for her. What I need to do is, again, what I did with Barrier Rights and learn more about the world in which she lived. So I started then to do a lot of reading, um, you know, really wide reading as well, about what, what it was like to be an illiterate peasant woman in County Kerry in the 1820s before mm. the famine. Um, and that, that wasn't necessarily easy, coming across that information either. The famine was of such significance that it really kind of cast a shadow over everything that happened before in the 19th century outside of a political environment and the emancipation of Catholics. And especially when you're looking for the kind of domestic detail that, um, you know, that you want to portray, particularly in the lives of women in a historical context, it's, it's not often written about. Mm. It's hard to find out what clothes people wear and what sort of chores they did and how their days were occupied. But I read a, I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of um, travellers, outsiders, travellers' journals to, to that area. I was fortunate in that Kalani, the area near where all this was set, was still a tourist. Um, tourist attraction back at this time so there were a lot of people arriving there and commenting you know in really derogatory terms about the peasantry and so you sort of read through the bias and try to find out about their lives Um, and I also was doing a lot of research about obviously these fairy stories and Irish folklore but also the role of women like Anne Roach within that particular communities that upheld those folkloric traditions. So I was reading about you know, the keeners and the midwives and the wise women and the calyx and, and what sort of things they did in these communities and where they were positioned within this community. So even from the start, I was getting a sense that this was an outsider story. This was mm. someone who was marginal, but not in necessarily a way that... Um, that meant that she was powerless. Indeed, she was quite. She would have been quite a powerful woman. And then I was looking at why people would have, you know, feared and respected her. I read a lot of stuff about um, Irish uh, folk medicine. Um, in fact, I got really into it. It's fascinating. You should see my herb garden now. It's, it's wonderful. Um, and and so I was really trying to get a sense of, okay, if I don't if I don't find if I can't find Anne Roach in the historical records, which inevitably I couldn't, I need to know. I guess an approximate. I need to understand what a, a woman like her, what her life might have resembled. Okay. And at the same time, I was trying to also um, find out anything more about this particular trial. When I went to Ireland, it was specifically to try and find out other newspaper records, things like that, about what, have, what had happened. And I had this uncanny experience at the National Library in in, um, in Dublin where I had found a local paper which was um, had been uh, I guess reproduced on microfilm from this particular time because I had a, an article from the trial and what I was looking for was hopefully something that had been written when the actual events had occurred and I thought well is it going to be anywhere it's going to be in this local paper mm. and I spent three days scrolling through this tiny print of a microfilm newspaper and I was getting closer and closer and closer to the trial date and I knew that something would pop up eventually and then all of a sudden the, uh, the record just jumped forward six months and I was devastated because oh, no. I spent all this time <laughs> trying to find it. And so I went into the toilets of the Dublin Library and cried oh. out of frustration and then uh, came back and just at random picked the next closest paper in, that had been um, preserved from that time, which was a completely different county. It was County Cork. And I'm just not even zooming in on this print. I'm just scrolling through these articles, I don't know, trying to find out the price of potatoes or something on this time. And when I saw just out of the corner of my eye, 
the words Anne Roach oh. and I wound back and I zoomed in and the article that was missing from the first record had been syndicated in this one. And in this particular newspaper article, two other women were mentioned. There was um, a grandmother called Honora Lee and there was also a servant. And I'd done enough research by now of Ireland at this time to know that the servant girl mentioned would have indeed been a girl. She would have been a teenager. And that's when I thought, oh, this is interesting. Now I have three women, not just okay. one protagonist. I essentially have three leads. And that was all I ended up having, these two newspaper articles about this event. So most of my research, and I probably spent about 18 months doing it, was about the times that they lived in, but also specifically about these folk beliefs. Okay. Um, and so the writing process was very much, you've got the ending, now <laughs> work out how you start it, and you've got to work backwards. And do that you, was another would challenge. you consider yourself to be an author who, uh, like when you say, you, you know, you had the ending and you had to work out what happened beforehand, did you do you do outline before you start or do you just start writing and then wait for it to unfold as you go? Like once you've got your characters and your, and obviously your, your setting is very, very important. Mm-hmm. So once you have those two things, do you just start to write or what, what sort of, um, how, how much plotting goes into what you do? I do both. I do both. I probably, um, I find it hard to plot without knowing my characters. So I think probably the first 30,000 words that I write are really just introductions. And often I end up throwing out a lot of that. But it's it enables me to become familiar with my characters. Mm. And then I find what I can do is with that familiarity, I can put the characters that I know intimately into situations of conflict and the plot will unfold from there because I know how those characters are going to uh, react to those situations. Um, and so, and then from that point on, it becomes quite easy to, to map out a book because I know the various things that need to happen and I can anticipate the responses that my characters will have to those situations and then how those responses will perhaps then lead to further, um, further situations of conflict. Mm-hmm. So that's, I work very much, I think plot and tandem are in, you know, in, you can't untangle the two. Mm-hmm. And I, for me to, to, I guess, believe in the, in the world that I'm creating and the story that I'm creating, I need to see the relationship between plot and character. Okay. So for me, the first things that I do will just be to write. It might be just little scenes that come to mind. It might, might be a lot of description. Um, and then when I feel that I've got a sense of who these people are, I often go back and cut a lot of that. And I'll start with um, a couple of events. Often often with a novel, I'll know, I'll, I'll know the ending. I know what's going to happen in the ending. So in this case, it was a matter of me. I actually worked in a three-act structure, and I have a, this sort of big blank wardrobe in my office, and I get post-its, and I sort of mapped out the various things that I need, I knew needed to happen, these various right. points of crisis within a third act structure. And then I plotted out some of them. But also um, then I would just write stuff for the joy of writing it just because I knew I wanted to include it or I was sitting at the computer and I just something would occur to me. So in some ways it's a little bit like, yes, I'll, the plotting will lead the process, but then the writing will just overtake it and I just follow the writing to where that wants to go and then I try to catch up in terms of structure. So it's a little bit of both leading and being led, I suppose, which is a very sort of unclear, it's hard for me to discuss that particular kind of process. It was a new one for me with this book. And, you know, I've only written two novels, but the more that I write, the more I feel that every book does require its own particular kind of process. Yeah. And, okay, so the whole time that you're doing this as well, you've you've got, you know, various things going on for burial rights, but you've also got... I mean, the success of Burial Rights was an amazing thing, but it must have also added a certain level of pressure to the second book. Like, did you did you have that second book syndrome feeling? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it was probably, you know, intensified by a lot of people coming up to me or writing to me and saying, oh, no pressure, second album oh, syndrome. No. Um, <laughs> you know, they meant very well, but <laughs> it didn't necessarily make me feel any better about it. Mm. Yeah, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a human um, and I feel pressure like the rest of us. And um, certainly I, I, the, I didn't want to disappoint anyone. I, mm. I wrote Burial Lights, you know, for four people, and really only two of them, and hoping my parents would like it. And then, uh, but with this book, I knew that whatever I wrote would be read. And so there were probably a, a few months where that was really um, a, a source of quite, you know, not inconsiderable anxiety for me mm. because I thought, well, you know, what happens? What if they hate it? What if I never get to write another novel? What if my publishers drop me? What if, you know, there's endless what ifs if you want to think of terrible situations. And then I basically just had to give myself a little talking to um, and reconsider it from a different perspective. So by that I mean um, actually recognize that to have people who, like I said before, want to spend some hours of their life with something that you have written by yourself, you know, in my case, alone in my room with my cat and my pajama pants, you know, that's a gift. What a wonderful thing that is. There's nothing bad about that. This is what a, what an immense, you know, what a wonderful thing. Um, and so I began, rather than feeling anxious about it, I started to feel grateful for it. And then the other thing that I was also doing is saying, look, you can't control how anyone responds to your work. You really can't. And if you worry too much about that, you're going to hamper the creative process. So, Hannah, just write from for the love of it. Just write for the same reason that you've always been writing. You know, I never, I like I said, I always wanted to be published, but I would have kept writing if I'd never been published. And, and I, you know, if I never get published again, I'll still keep writing because that, for me, is the source of joy. That's what I love is is the actual act of writing. And so I thought, well, just do that and enjoy that and don't worry too much about it. Um, cross your fingers. So, so I did. Yeah, cross your fingers and also just leave it up to the fates a little bit too. But just try to do your best. And, and so I actually, with that, um, that was actually a really good way to think about it because I thought, well, okay, what do I want to do with my writing? I want to improve. I want to try these, you know, these new things like writing in a three-act structure. Um and so I thought, well, let's use this as an opportunity to develop. And then if, if everyone hates your book and, you know, you have to move country, then, you know, at least you'll know that you've developed in this way or you gave it a go. So When you you're know, hiding in your was... cave in Outer Mongolia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I'm scraping moss off the walls to document, I just think, oh, well, I gave something a shot. Gave it a go. And so have you, with yeah. all that in mind, have you actually begun writing a third book at all? Yeah, I have. I'm actually working on a, on a quite a different project at the moment, uh, which is um, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with two producers based in Melbourne. Uh, we receive funding through Screen Australia's Gender Matters. And so we're working on the first sort of concept stages of a feature film, which oh. um, I'm hoping to also write down the track. And I've never written for screen before. So this is a very, very different process for me. And I feel like quite a novice, but I'm also relishing that process of, of learning um, all these different skills too. So that's what I'm kind currently doing Fantastic. but um I do I do also know what my third book will be so hopefully I'll get I'll get started on that in, the third, in next year excellent all right well just to finish up for today um I would like to ask you the question I ask all our authors um what are your three top tips for aspiring authors it's a good question I I always um I can only ever really do I can only ever really pass on the advice which I received and found useful. And so this is, you know, I'm certainly not the origin or the source of this advice. I think much of it is common sense. I think the first one is to to read. 
Um, I remember when I was teaching at university, there would be some people who really, really desperately wanted to be writers but just wouldn't read. And I'd, I don't really understand that. I think the best way to learn how to write and how to improve as a writer is to read. Read stuff that you don't necessarily want to write, um, but read read widely, read different genres, find out what it is that you do enjoy and why you enjoy it. So read just for the sheer joy of it, but also read closely. Um, often when I'm stuck in my own work, I'll return to, I read a lot of poetry when I'm writing and often that's because I'm struggling with my own, uh, you know, I can't, I can't communicate this idea that I have. And I really admire poets' way of of conveying so much in so few words. I love their concision and the precision of their words. So by going away and reading poetry, I'll be both inspired, but I also study it for technique. Um, so reading, definitely just read. The second thing is that um, I think, you know, start, don't wait until you're ready because I think so rarely do we feel ready for anything in this life, writing included, particularly creative projects, which are necessarily with, you know, you're operating in an atmosphere of uncertainty. That's what makes it original. You have no guiding light. You have no no sense of how it's all going to turn out. It's, it's mysterious, but that can often mean that we we don't really know where to begin. I think the best thing to do is just begin, just start. Don't wait until you feel ready for it. And perhaps third, it would be to just work and trust the process. I mean, talent is a wonderful thing, but it isn't, it doesn't actually count so much in the long run. I think what counts is showing up, mm. you know, having a writing routine, sitting at the desk, even for just 20 minutes a day or whatever you can manage and, and working and writing when you don't feel like it, but just showing up. Mm. Um, I think that's how books get written. I don't think books get written through, you know, muse muses or or you know gifts of talent or genius i think books get written by people who read and write you know start when they're not even sure what they're going to do and who just keep showing up and keep on doing it i think that's the secret i have to agree with you on all of those things thank you so <laughs> much for your time today hannah really really appreciate it best of luck with the good people it's been really well received and i'm sure it's going to go gangbusters for you and um and also best of luck with the with the screenplay fantastic Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing that interview, Al. I mean, gosh, she just does so much research, doesn't she? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I think that's why, like, when you read her work, I think that, you know, she evokes such an amazing sense of place mm. in her novels. Like, the setting of her novels, you know, is almost a an additional character almost yes. in, the, in the stories, um, which I think is fantastic. But, yeah, she she certainly has an interesting time of it. I mean, she went to Iceland for burial rites, you know, taught herself mm. to read ancient Icelandic or something mm. to do that. Of course you do, of course you do. And then, you know, to spend, you know, actually immerse herself in Ireland for the for the second book. And, yeah, I think it's amazing. And I think that she manages to not let the research overwhelm the story and I think that yes. that's an art in itself. Definitely, because sometimes when people, when writers do a lot of research, they want to show that they've done a lot of research mm -hmm. and they want to put it all in their book, which is, mm -hmm. yeah, a little bit mm -hmm. distracting. Mm, can be. All right. Well, let's move on to a different Hannah. Oh. Completely different Hannah. Who has the, Hannah, the Hannah episode. It's the Hannah episode, yes. Now, this Hannah has sent us a, a question and she said, I often hear you and Alison talking about scheduling 
social media posts. This is a great idea, but is there one app that can manage and schedule your social media posts across most platforms? I'm thinking Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram mainly. Could you please recommend something? There has been, there has to be a better way than double, triple, or quadruple handling your posts. There we go. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, am I talking about this or are you going to talk about this? Or should we just sit here in silence uh, okay. and, and <laughs> contemplate the question for a moment? <laughs> well, the immediate things that come to mind, are the two things come to mind. I mean, put it this way, lots of apps can schedule social media posts mm. and uh, a free one is Hootsuite. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, there is also Buffer, which has a small fee. And I think that Buffer is really good for scheduling social media posts. But if you want to take it one step further, there is Edgar, which is, uh, you'll find it meetedgar.com. Mm-hmm. And with Edgar, it not only does it schedule social media posts, but it will also um, repost ones. So for your evergreen content, um, you know, where it might be 10 ways to write a novel or something. So if you've got evergreen content, you can flag that as evergreen content and Edgar will um, post them out again in coming weeks and months. So Mm. yes, um, basically I think Buffer and Edgar are great solutions and they do do most platforms. They do. do I would also add a caveat to that though, just as someone who does use uh, scheduling, I use Buffer for Facebook and for Twitter. Um, I do find though that uh, as someone who follows a lot of different pages and blogs and things like that, I, I find it very disconcerting when I see the same thing appear at the same time across right. four different platforms. Oh, yes. I think you need to be careful about how you use it. Like I don't mm-hmm. think that I would necessarily be, you know, putting every single post that I ever put on, on into social media across every platform at the same time. Yes. Um, now, I know, you know, even with Instagram, for example, you can link, even if you're just using the Instagram app, you can link your Twitter and your Facebook and, and assorted other things uh, to Instagram mm. for it all to happen at the same time. But I rarely use that function for the simple fact that I hate Facebook posts that have 8,000 Instagram hashtags on them. Hashtags, mm. So if I'm going to post something on both of those things, I will do them at different times of the day and I will do the one on Facebook, you know, separately so that it doesn't have the 30 hashtags on it that a lot of Instagram posts carry. Because yes, yes. you can just see straight away that that's what's going on and people know you're not actually there. And I think that that's something that authors need to be a little bit wary of because you don't want to just be blasting stuff at people all the time. The You can't overlook the importance of that engagement aspect with social media you Mm. have to be social so while it's you know there are certain things that you can just you know put across everything don't do everything and some posts work really well on Facebook and not as well on Twitter or you know vice versa Um, so a lot of the content that I put on the Australian Writers Centre Facebook page for instance um, on Twitter rather I'll put Mm -hmm. up a lot of stuff on Twitter that I don't necessarily put on the Facebook page yes and you know that's because People use Facebook differently. The content that I think is important for the Facebook page, for the Australian Writers' Centre Facebook page, is different for Facebook to what it is for Twitter. It's just, you know, you've got to think about how people utilise, who's on those platforms and how they utilise it. So, yes, all of those things are, you you can schedule all of those things, but think about how much of it you actually want to schedule. That would be my 
thought. And my question to you then, just put on your Alison Tate author hat. Not my writer centre page, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and not your Alison Tate personal hat. Oh, yes, yeah. So your Alison Tate author hat on social media. Do you have any kind of policy or, you know, approach in terms of engagement as in when people do engage with one of your posts, whether that's – responding to it or just commenting on it or whatever mm-hmm. do you have any kind of yeah engagement policy from the perspective of will I block what, what, them if they say the wrong thing or oh, from the no, perspective I mean, of what do I do in response yes yes oh you, I respond yes. every single time so if somebody comments on a on a post I will like you know read their comment like it so that they know that I've read it like because I yes. think people like to know that you've actually seen what they're what they've done and I will um you know, comment back most of the time. I respond to comments all the time because I think, and I do it on Instagram as well um, and on Twitter. I think it's, um, you know, engagement is a two-sided thing. So people, I think it's one of the reasons that my Facebook page is is such an active place. Um, and I do, yes. I know people say, you know, that they don't get as good a reach on their Facebook pages as they used to, but my, mine hasn't dropped. And I think the reason for that is that I post uh you know, relatively frequently, at least mm. a couple of times a day on different things, like some pe- other things, you know, other people's stuff, my stuff, whatever. Yep. But if people respond to me, then I talk to them. Yep. And, and I that's think so that's important. Really, really important. And it's, you know, it takes me about two and a half seconds to, you know, thank someone for a comment or to yep. respond or to whatever. And I don't do it all the time. So yeah. I block out, you know, I'm going to go to Facebook now, spend five minutes there just checking in to see what's going on, respond to whoever's talked to me and then that's it, you know, for So do you have set times of the day that you go, okay, at three o'clock I'm going to do that or what? Uh, no, because so what I generally tend to find is my my community is most active in the evenings and always has been. Mm. Um, so it's a it's you know I've got a lot of night owl kind of personnel. Um, so I tend to be around, you know, on Twitter and on Facebook in the evenings, and that works best for me too because you know of course you know the kids are gone to bed and I'm sitting there doing whatever I'm doing. Um, so, you know, that's when I do a lot of my commenting and the other, t- I'll probably go in once during the day at some stage, maybe lunchtime and just check to see that everything's you know running smoothly, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, you know, what I do. Yeah. But I like to acknowledge. Yes. So people, important. People like to be acknowledged. And so, and I like to be acknowledged if I comment on someone else's page or if I, you know, tweet with someone on, on Twitter and stuff, um, and they don't respond, I, I just, you know, it's incredibly disappointing, particularly oh, if I you're know. a fan, you know, if I'm a fan oh, of someone and then they don't talk back to me, I'm, it's like I'm 10, you know, again. I'm I all know. Like, so devast- like the other day, like about a month ago, I went to the Ensemble Theatre and actually saw an extremely good play, fantastic play called um, E-Baby, which uh, I, I don't know why, but it wasn't a popular one with the regular ensemble crowd. And um, even though it had been on the program all year, it just did not sell enough tickets. And usually when I go to the ensemble, it has it's, – it's full, mm. practically full. Mm. But this was barely – you know, it, it only only one section were, um, had people sitting in it and oh. even that section was not full. So it was a fraction of the usual audience. And I noticed that they were having trouble selling tickets for this. I think it was just the 
topic or whatever of the play. But in fact, yeah. it was an extraordinary, it was fantastic, this play. So I wanted to support them and get on social media, which I did. And I tagged not only the playwright, but I also tagged Ensemble. And right. I basically said how fantastic this play was, tagging yeah. the Ensemble and the playwright and basically in saying, go see it. Cause it's, it, it is, it was a very good play. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, there was no response from either of those people. And you're you were kidding. kidding. You would think that they would want to spread the word, you know, that other people have thought the place fantastic, you want to buy tickets kind of thing. No, there was no response. <sighs> well, that's, yeah, gee, that is disappointing. Well, and, actually, no, sorry. I um, Certainly no response from Ensemble. The um, playwright did retweet it to her very few followers. Um, but, but not but without saying thanks for sharing. But yes, or- no acknowledgement or sharing or, or whatever, which was interesting. I mean, and that's okay, but I just thought, oh, uh, I wonder if I would have, you know, had I got some, you know, acknowledgement, um, I wonder if I would probably have even been going harder and saying, you know, seriously, everyone, go see this play because it was fantastic. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's look, look, I think the thing to basically take away from that is it takes – no time at all to to be polite and to you know and uh, so if people share my mm-hmm. things like I you know I I always say thank you I think it's a really um it's just an important thing it's a it's all about it it's about the relationships you would say thank you if someone did something nice for you you know in real life in so life, yes so why not do it online I think it's um really important yes and of course this and other fantastic platform building tips from Alison can be found in Alison's awesome course, How to Build Your Author Platform. And if you want to find out more about that, go to writercentre.com.au slash platform. All right. Oh, and we're almost at the end of this week's episode, but I just want to give a big big shout out to Rebecca, who is in the Freelance Writing Masterclass program. And we recently had our very first uh, Ask Me Anything Facebook live session. Oh, yes. How did it it go? It was really fun. It was interesting because I had to look at multiple screens and, you know, Mm. look at the Facebook live thing as well. But we asked, we we answered lots and lots of um, questions. And the next day, Rebecca said, you know, thanks for your advice. I got the commission on, you know, whatever it was that um, it it was an upcoming, uh, it was a story idea that she had that we workshopped in the Facebook live and she got the commission for it the very next day. Oh, that is so fantastic. Very exciting. So congratulations, Rebecca. Well done. Oh, I've got one more thing to say before we go yes. because I, I keep forgetting to do these things. Um, I just wanted to say that the Your Kids Next Read Facebook group is now at 1,000 members, which is oh, just a wow. massive, massive thing. But um, we're holding currently, um, my co-admin Megan Daly from Children's Books Daily is holding a 12 days of Christmas books giveaway. So all kids, um, oh, wow. yeah, you can win like every day until the 12th. Tw- it's the 12th, yeah, clearly, the 12th of <laughs> December. That's my life. Um, until the 12th of December, you can win, um, you can sort of, you know, comment or whatever, and then at um, after that 12 days of Christmas, there'll be 12 winners of all of these different children's books that we have to give away. So um, if you'd like to join us, we are in Facebook at Your Kids Next Read, and it would be great to see you there. Brilliant, brilliant. All right, what are you doing in this coming week, Al? 
Ah, uh, well, exci- well, I've got – oh, so exciting. So Ooh. I am um, – well, I'm just about finished the copy edit on the fourth book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series, and we have a cover, rough, which I saw yesterday, which is just <gasps> oh, amazing. Wow. I know. I'm so incredibly excited. Um, so it's looking brilliant. Um, as I don't know if you've um, seen the covers. Of course you have. But I just think the covers – on the series are just amazing. Like yes, I, I've loved I love them. them. Um, and kids love them as well, which is brilliant. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've just, yeah, I've seen the roughs of the, of the fourth one and uh, I cannot wait until I'm allowed to share it with everyone. When are you um, allowed to share it? Well, soon, I hope. I'm not exactly sure when, right. you know, it's all about the, I'm just waiting for my, I'm waiting for the nod, people. Okay. Waiting right. for the nod. Yeah. Oh so, um, so what am I doing? I'm finishing that and I'm writing my, my um, manuscript is what I'm doing. Is it going to look good in a set? So it's going to look amazing. Oh, Absolutely wow. amazing. Yeah. That's it's so cool. really cool. They just, um, yeah, I'm so excited by how they, how they come together. I can't believe there's going to be four of them. It's really I know. exciting. <laughs> That's so excited. I'm excited. Yeah, anyway. Awesome. So that's me. I'll be excited. And what about you? What will you be doing? Well, it's really weird. It's, you know, coming up to the end of the year, I think people are getting organised, like publishers and stuff, um, and publishers and companies and, you know, corporate publishers are getting organised for the new year. So I'm getting a lot of um, corporate slash branded journalism commissions in this, this leader to okay. the end of the year, like can you hurry up and do this or can we make sure we book you in to do it in January because a lot of uh, some people are away so they want to yeah. make sure someone's going to do it in January. So, yeah, that's been happening. It's well, just that, that wow. funny time okay, of year. So you're busy. Yeah. Yes, busy. Anyway, so thank you for listening, everyone. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And what about you, Val? Where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter. And, yeah, you can connect with me on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo uh, in Sydney. And uh, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love your feedback as well on the podcast uh, because um, we want to make sure it's relevant for you. So thank you for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.